Well, good morning. I know uh, Mark Chansky was very reluctant to ask me to do this because he didn't want you to get a good look at who actually has the best head of hair in the Reformed Baptist Network. <laughs> Everyone else was reluctant because I'm me. <laughs> Let's turn to Psalm 96. Now, the story of global Christian missions is a story that hardly lives up to the romanticized picture that is often painted when believers think about the call of God to fulfill the Great Commission. Just prior to his ascension, we read in Matthew 28 that Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The church that Christ established has understood that this means that we have a mission, we have an obligation. We have a calling. We have a mandate from our Lord, from the creator and sustainer of the universe to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why as a network, our stated mission is to glorify God through fellowship and cooperation in fulfilling the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. We believe the scriptures that teach us repeatedly that there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Of course, the Apostle Paul then asks, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so what do we do? We remember the words of our Lord Jesus who said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, as is often the case, the sterilized environments where the gathered church often meets. We can discuss the commands, we can discuss the means, we can pray, we can gather resources, and we must do all of this for this great task. But when it comes time to put our feet on the ground and do the work, nearly every story that you read about the men and women that God has used to bring the gospel to the nations will tell you that the work of cross-cultural missions, and especially in pioneer mission settings, is the most difficult and dangerous work in all the world. It's not romantic. It's not idyllic. It's painful. It's often filled with intense suffering. It's filled with discouragement and detractors and constant criticisms and even physical and most certainly spiritual attacks. So it's important for us, especially for pastors, to see that for us to really embrace and to 
support and to call on men and women to give their lives to this calling, there has to be an all-consuming purpose that supersedes the valley of the shadow of death. Otherwise, nobody will go. And if they do go, no one will stay for very long. Many people will criticize those who will willingly give up everything to go on the mission field. There's plenty to do here. Think about your children. Think about your safety. Think about your health. And there's no doubt that when things get tough, that the temptation is to believe the criticisms and to believe the lies. So what has to happen? What has to be in a person's heart that they will persevere to triumph over the persistent challenges on the mission field? What is the all-consuming fire that burns in the hearts of those who go, that keeps their feet on the ground, even when things get tough and seem impossible. Let's look at Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. Amen. God's plan has always been to have his people declare his glory to the nations. God has always, not just in the New Testament, but God has always sought his children from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Psalm 96 calls all the earth and all of nature to praise the Lord. It expresses a great hope that all of the nations surrounding Israel would honor the one true and living God. And it is the responsibility of the church to be the means that God uses to declare his glory to the nation. Notice in verse 1, we see the universal focus of God's aim. All the earth, all the earth is exhorted to sing to the Lord. And verse 2, to tell of his salvation from day to day. 
The emphasis is on the truth of God's uniqueness. All of the nations outside of Israel had their own gods that they worship, but it is Yahweh alone who exists as the creator and sustainer of the universe. He made the heavens. It is Yahweh alone who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. It is Yahweh alone to whom all the earth shall sing. It is Yahweh alone who is to be feared above all others. It is Yahweh alone who has splendor and majesty before him. It is Yahweh alone who has strength and joy in his place. It is Yahweh alone to whom all the peoples of the earth are to ascribe glory and strength. It is to Yahweh alone that we are to bring an offering as we come before him. He is not a worthless idol like all of the gods of the surrounding nations. And so his glory is to be declared that all might see and that all might hear. The covenant community of Israel was never intended to be a limited group of people who were the physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so the Great Commission is the natural outworking of the Lord's desire from the very beginning to have all of the nations worship him. Amen. Notice there are at least two important things that we see in this psalm. First, it's all throughout this psalm, but the point is well found in verse 4. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And secondly, the psalmist tells us why. He gives us the purpose Verses 11 through 13, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So we see there is a very clear implication here about the duty of God's people. Declare. In other words, we don't have the luxury of sitting back and hoping that it will get done. We don't get to say, I'm sure someone else will get to it. We don't get to be hyper-Calvinists and say, well, God is sovereign, so he will figure it out. Brothers, he has figured it out. God has appointed a means to fulfill his ends, and we are that means as the people of God. And it is a blessed privilege to be the means that God uses to declare his glory to the nations and to tell of all of his marvelous works among the peoples. Declare his glory. That is the mandate, and we are the means. But brothers, for those of us who are pastors, I think we need to have an even stronger conviction that we are the first line means that God uses. We are called on to preach the word in our congregations week in and week out. And if we are not emphasizing God's heart for the nations, if we are not publicly and privately praying for the nations, if we are not calling on the people of God to examine their hearts and pray to God asking if they are to be sent, if they are to go and to declare his glory, who will? I hope we don't just think that since God calls people to do the work of the ministry, 
that we can just sit back silently and pray that God will raise up missionaries and we never say anything to God's people about it. That we never challenge God's people to consider whether or not they should go. The task is urgent, brothers, and, and one of the ways we can at least start to emphasize the need for more laborers in the harvest field is to pray publicly for that very thing and to regularly put it into the ears of God's people that maybe they should consider a life on the mission field. I think one of the ways we can really help encourage people to start thinking about missions is to encourage them to evangelize and to give them opportunities to share with the congregation of the opportunities they've had to evangelize, to encourage others to do the same. Evangelism is the first step toward raising up new missionaries. And if we're not talking to our neighbors about Jesus, what business do we have going across the world? What can happen in time as we pray, as we encourage, as we preach about God's heart for the nations? Perhaps, perhaps he will be pleased to raise up those who will give up life as they know it and enter into a world of discomfort and suffering and danger. Brothers, we're doing nothing less than asking people to die for Christ. Now, of course, there are many who are genuinely not called to go, so we should be encouraging them to be in constant prayer for the nations and for the workers on the front lines. We should be encouraging them to write letters and emails to encourage the workers. We should be exhorting them to give generously to support their efforts. I think one of the greatest tragedies of modern missions is how much time and effort missionaries have to put into raising funds to be able to do the work that they are doing. Tell your church, if you are not called to go, do everything that you can do to make as much money as you can so you can be as generous as you can to support the work of global missions. That doesn't give anyone a pass. And if you're called to stay, don't give up telling others about Jesus. Because who knows what God will do? Who knows what future missionaries are yet unconverted that you might share the gospel with? It's amazing to read all of the conversion stories of the greatest missionaries and preachers that we have known throughout church history and how many of them were not converted because of some amazing sermon they heard. No, so often it was because someone dared to share the truth of the gospel with them, and in time, God used them to set the world on fire. But there is yet a great need to cultivate a proper motivation. Again, the work of missions is an impossible work without this motivation. We all know the stories. It, it might take years and years before we see progress. But we have to remember the highest aim. Missions is not an end in itself. Planting churches and seeing new converts is not an end in itself. We rejoice in these great things, and we should. But the end of missions is that the nations would bend their knee before God in humble worship. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. 
Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Brothers, our proper motivation is that the nations would know true communion with our triune God. But how can we preach and impress the importance of this great commission on the hearts of God's people if we are not living in communion with God ourselves? Listen, I know how busy life can get in ministry. Preaching and counseling and administrating and committee meetings and fellowships and conferences, elders meetings, officer meetings, mentoring, reading, training. It goes on and on and on. But brothers... Are you making time to commune with God? God has promised to dwell among his people where he will be worshipped and enjoyed. He has appointed the necessary means to enjoy and delight in his presence. And your desire for the nations to worship the Lord is directly proportional to your own worship of the Lord. And I promise it will be directly reflected in your preaching and teaching. Are you feasting on the good gifts of God? Are you storing his word in your heart? Are you reminding yourself of the promises of God? Are you reminding yourself day by day that God truly loves you as his child? Sadly, brothers, I think we can get so focused on preaching the next sermon or leading the next meeting that we can get to a place where we forget that God is not an abstract idea that lives out there. We can forget that true worship isn't just showing up to sing, isn't just leading others in prayer, isn't just preaching a well-crafted sermon. These are the elements of corporate worship, but the elements are not worship. Worship is a holy delighting in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Worship is a daily tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Worship is using those means that God has appointed that we might have more intimate, a more felt sense of God's presence in our lives day after day. And brothers, if we are communing with our God, we will have all the fuel that we need to motivate ourselves and others for the great task of declaring the glory of God to the nations that they too might rightly worship the God who created them. And so we have to ask ourselves. Many of us have spent most of our adult lives in ministry. Do we still have a great love for the Lord in our hearts? Or do we just love the benefits of being in ministry? Do we love being called pastor more than we love being called a child of God? If we're not finding our greatest joy in Christ, our motivations to reach the nations won't be there. We have to remind ourselves every day, this isn't just for us to preach, it's for us to believe and to be thankful for and to delight in. Brothers, never forget, you and I were enemies of God. We were a people who cared nothing for our creator. We cared nothing about the one who gave us life and breath and being. We did everything in our lives in defiance of him because we, like our father Adam, loved ourselves and had a wonderful plan for our lives. And yet, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died 
for us. We were rebels, we were murderers, we were adulterers, we were thieves, we were liars, we were filled with all kinds of covetousness. We didn't honor God as God, we had idols all around us, we disdained the name of God. We didn't honor his his ways, his purposes, his day, his worth, and his majesty, and yet Jesus Christ came into this world and lived a perfect life because we can't. Jesus Christ came into this world and died on a cross, even though that's what you and I deserve. Jesus Christ was buried in a grave and three days later was raised again to conquer sin and death so that his enemies could have everlasting life when they turned to him by faith in humility and acknowledged that he and he alone is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Brothers, this is the life-changing, soul-transforming reality that drives us not only to worship our God and delight in His truth and feast upon the great gifts of His hands, but it drives us to declare it to anyone who will hear because we simply cannot keep it to ourselves. Your worship of God is directly tied to whether or not your desire for others will be to put their hand in your hand and lead them to meet their king. It is directly tied to whether or not we will be motivated to do everything we can in this great work of bringing the gospel to the nations that they too might worship the risen Lord. Communion with God, brothers. That is our motivation. This is what the motivation was for John Patton and William Carey and Adoniram Judson and Jim Elliott and Lottie Moon and Amy Carmichael and David Livingston and every other missionary who has looked fear and danger in the eyes and said, it doesn't matter, send me. They must know, they need to know, and I must tell them. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will keep anyone on the mission field in the midst of the trials. Nothing else will open our hands to let go of our earthly goods and treasures. Nothing else will keep us on our knees in prayer that the nations would be glad in Christ. Nothing other than the true communion that we can have with our great triune God that will continue to fuel us to fulfill the Great Commission. And in the end, we can give thanks to our Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And so let us strive with all that we are, that we have in us to worship God in spirit and in truth, that we might have the motivation that we need to declare His glory to the nations, that they too would know of the steadfast love that endures forever, that we can join together with every tongue, tribe, people, and nation and declare, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he alone is worthy of all worship. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you have called us as your people to declare your glory to the nations. May we be faithful to fulfill that task. But first and foremost, O God, 
may you work by your spirit in our lives that we might rightly use the means that you have provided to experience and enjoy true communion with you. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to do just that, that you would be glorified in our lives and that every tongue, tribe, people, and nation would enjoy that communion as well. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.